The scripture for today comes from Daniel 6, 1 through 10, 16 through 23. It is pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan and uh, privileged to be with you. We finally made it to this point in the book of Daniel to Daniel chapter 6, where we're looking at uh, Daniel and the lion's den. When you heard that we were going to be preaching through the series that we entitled Faithful, the Gospel According to Daniel, uh, most of you probably immediately went, I know at least one story in this book. If you've been around the church, maybe this is unfamiliar as well. But you got to get to chapter 6 to get there, so I'm going to set the stage for, for why we are here and what we're doing with this. But <clears throat> as I jump into this chapter, let me say that in Daniel chapter 3, a couple of sermons ago, in Daniel chapter 3, and likely 50 years prior, 
some of Daniel's best friends. Their names are uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into a fiery furnace due to the pride of this egotistical man by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this story, as you look at what's going on and people being thrown into certain types of unique pressure-filled situations, being thrown into a furnace, in this case, being thrown into the den of lions, you see the pressures of pluralism. One of the reasons that we stop to pray for the persecuted church is because you see persecuted faith in the book of Daniel. And persecuted faith is still a very real thing. In our country, it looks different than in those top five most persecuted countries. But no less, you woke up this morning with certain pressures on you. And some of that pressure is stuff that is uh, self-inflicted. You realize this. These are things that you do to yourself. But it's also there are things that is pushing, there are pressures that are pushing on us that you could name. It could be family. It could be your children. It could be this work assignment. But really, there are other forces at play. And we're bringing light to some of those. It's the pressures of pluralism, which means that you live in a country that is attempting to define reality for you. And they're going to give you a different perspective on where to find that reality, where to root that meaning. And those pressures are very, very real. And you see it manifest in unique ways, of course, in this ancient culture with those three young, brave men who, who, who had this pressure put on them to worship a different God. And to bow down to a different value system. And they, when they were given the temptation to run away from the fire, they said, well, king, we believe that our God can save us. He's got the ability. We believe that our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, right, we're not going to bow to your king, to you, O king, or to your gods. And God does save those young men in Daniel 3. And he saves them, of course, by entering into the flame with them. What type of God does that? What type of God says, I'm going to come into your flame with you so that you can get to the other side, but I have to be the one to escort you? And as we mentioned, there's so many similarities between these stories. And here, Daniel is not thrown into the fire, but into his own pit and into his own tomb of sorts, right, this den of lions. So three things I'm going to walk you through today from this story are, number one, a life of order. Let's look at Daniel's life and the, the details we're given. So a life of order, and I'm going to show you what I mean by order. Number two, a life of habit, and of course that being prayer in this case, a life of habitual prayer. Number three, a life of hope. All right, so a life of order, habit, and hope. Let's look at verse three. If you've got a Bible, have it open. Verse three. There we read, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Of course, we're introduced to Daniel when he's probably in his mid-teens. Can you imagine your life being upended, right? family changing, all the dynamics, probably had family members who were killed by the invasion of Babylon into his city, but because he's intellectually elite, because he's well-educated, we don't know exactly his connections, but he's probably taken first with some of his closest friends. Now he's in his 80s, and this guy has lived his entire adult life in deportation, 
amongst people that were not family and were not his community, didn't speak his language, didn't eat his foods. I mean, this has been his entire life for a long, long time. But throughout his life, the detail that we're given is that he gives a lifetime of public service. He serves under three different administrations. He serves under King Nebuchadnezzar. He serves under King Belshazzar. And now he's serving under the third king, King Darius. And within each of these administrations, one of the things that we see about Daniel is he rises to the top. This guy's extremely intelligent. He's got a lot of giftedness. And so every one of those administrations notices how proficient and how gifted he is, and he continues to rise up. One of the details that we're given is that he has this, this excellent spirit within him. Now, this doesn't mean that he's got like a, a great personality or that he exudes charisma. The point of that statement is that God was with him. And that God put an excellent spirit in this man's life to be used for a specific purpose, even though it was very difficult, far away from home. So it's probably been around 60-ish years, give or take, he has been serving as a government official, and here he is with the third administration, and he's coming into kind of prominence again. Very professionally successful. But not only was he professionally accomplished, he had the character to match. This is what's so beautiful about Daniel. I've got a dear friend. His name is John Hawkins. I think John is probably 65, maybe 70. And when I have a conversation with John Hawkins, it's like I'm having a conversation with Daniel. I mean, this man just exudes character. But he's brilliant. He's a leadership guru. He's written multiple books. He has his own podcast. He has a beautiful life and a wonderful family. But when you sit with him, you're not just mesmerized by his giftedness and accomplishments. You leave impacted by his character, that I've been in the presence of a man who loves Jesus. You ever been around people like that, where you just feel impacted by their presence? This is what Daniel was about. Now, Darius, of course, he's the king at the moment. Let's go to Darius for a moment. Like other kings before him, Darius notices Daniel's giftedness, and he makes him a member of the king's cabinet. So he's a guy who's risen to the top. He's one of the three presidents, the satraps. There's three guys who are way at the top. Then they notice, you know what, of the three amigos, this guy is the one who's got the most proficiency and giftedness and history, competence. Daniel, this outsider, this is very important, he's not Babylonian. This outsider keeps rising to the top. But at this point in the story, his exceptional qualities, as are recorded in the text, are too much for the local elites and the members of this ruling class, and they don't like what they're seeing. And so what they decide to do is they decide to cancel Daniel. And this is a pretty common political tactic, especially in election years. We know what this has looked like. It can get ugly, right? They're looking to drum up the dirt. They're going back into all of the years that he has spent with them and around them. And as they're doing the research, they got nothing. They're like, man, this guy seems to be like so unique amongst all of the elites. Very easy to find dirt. They can find nothing on this man. So what we see is that he's socially, that he's, he's um, vocationally proficient, but he has incredible character to match. They can't find any dirt on this guy. And so they say in verse 5, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Pretty smart, actually. We can't pin him down. Let's go after his faith. And so they decide to to write a law, and they play to the pride of King Darius. 
They say, oh, King Darius, we love you so much. We want to do something for you. We want to bless you. We want all the people in the land to worship only you. And of course, when they do that, this means that this 30-day edict, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, cannot be revoked. This is actually historical. But the king could, could wake up and say, you know what? New law here, new law there. I don't like that. You can't wear Nikes. You can't wear Adidas. They're like, no, no, no. You can't just change your mind all the time. When it goes into law, now your hands are tied. You can't switch this up. All right, so this is historically attested. So once the law has gone into effect, he can't, as king, say, now let's change it. So an edict is given. 30 days have been announced. Nobody in our kingdom can worship anybody but the king. And what does Daniel do right away? Verse 10 tells us. Look there. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been, put, had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So his response to this prideful edict is that Daniel goes home, he goes right upstairs, he hits his knees, he opens the window, he prays towards Jerusalem, just as he had done for years and years before, three times a day, praying and orienting his life in a certain direction. This is why we are given the detail about where he's facing. It's about the orientation, it's a clue about the ordering of this man's entire life. What we learn about Daniel is that his life is ordered more by a love for the city of God than the city of man, all right? Babylon has deep symbolism in the Bible. The whole orientation of Daniel's life tended to point more to Zion and the things of God than Babylon and the things of man. He drops to his knees. The decree has been given. If you pray to anybody else, your life is going to be taken, death row for you. So this man goes, you know what? My life is oriented in this direction. He goes up to his prayer closet, opens the window as an act of defiance in so many ways, and saying, you can't take this from me. My life is ordered by this God. You've got to at least pause and say, what gives your life orientation and ordering. What orients your life? Christianity talks a lot about the proper ordering of our lives around the proper ordering of our loves. And when I talk about a life of order, this is what I want to get us to. The ordering of a life through the ordering of your loves. The order of things actually matters. Now, I recently heard somebody ask a question about Christianity. Maybe you're asking this question, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're asking this, or maybe you're a new uh, person who's interested because you have a friend who's really different, and you go, what makes you different? They go, you know, it has to do something with my faith. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, but the question is a good one. What is the goal and the point of Christianity? What are Christians doing? What are they after? Are you after happiness? Are you after peace of mind and peace of heart? Or maybe you just kind of need a, a new perspective on the world. What's going on in your mind and heart as you think about faith and following Jesus? Maybe you're after forgiveness of sin. Maybe you're after eternity because death is this thing that's always in the back of your heart and back of your mind. Let me see that Christianity actually offers all of those things. Christianity is about healing. It is about hope. It is about 
peace that surpasses understanding. It is about an eternity that goes on forever with the God of love. This is what Christianity does offer. But when Jesus is asked that exact same question, I want to lean in and see how he answers that question. Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight. Somebody comes to Jesus and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Really, what's it all about? What's the point of this thing? You're a great rabbi. We see it. But what's it all about? Jesus' answer is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. See, Jesus' answer about what is the heartbeat of Christianity? What's the anchor point of faith? He goes, it's all about love, but it's not just any sort of love. It's about well-ordered love. He summarizes the law of God by saying it's really about loving God first. If you go to the first of the Ten Commandments, we find the exact same thing. You shall have no other gods before me, which means nothing in your life should come first. You go, I mean, how naive. I can't even see this God. You're telling me that he's supposed to be priority, that I'm supposed to order my life around something that I can't touch, something, I need something physical. I need something that I can go after. I need some sort of ambition that I can uh, set a goal and I'm going to go and get it. This is why at times faith seems difficult. But what the reality of Christianity is saying is if you put anything out front other than the God who made you, you're going to have a second-rate life. You're going to have a second-tiered life. Your life is going to come up short over and over again. If I put money out front, if I put reputation or the next big project or my wonderful family, if I make them first, if I order my life around them, it's going to break down. You're going to have mechanical failure. And this is what the Bible is pointing us to, and you see it beautifully displayed in Daniel's life, the whole orientation of his life is ordered around this God whom he hasn't been in his temple for 65 years. He hadn't seen the temple in Jerusalem for this long, but day after day, he goes and ordered his, orders his life. We're going to get to this in point two, right, around his love for God. But quickly, let me go back to this manipulative plan of the rulers who wanted to undermine Daniel. Why were they so furious and hell-bent on taking Daniel down to the point of taking his life and destroying him? One question would be, is this an extreme case of professional jealousy? They're just tired of watching this outsider make it to the top. It would seem like a bit of an extreme case in your opinion and probably the biblical writer's opinion. But more likely... They disdain this aging prophet because Daniel's life and presence have exposed their own disordered loves. That's what's happening in the story. Their own lives and their own hearts and character were brought into the light by Daniel's life and by his character, and they hated him. Let me read this for you. Ronald Wallace writes, There was no reason whatever why this man should be persecuted and hounded to death, except that he was good. And he stood as a sign of the existence and grace of a good God. We can only call it, to use a New Testament phrase, the mystery of lawlessness. The story of Daniel, hated by his contemporaries, plotted against and condemned to die simply because he stood for the truth, is one of a long series of stories in the Bible of such irrational hatred directed by those who are against God. 
There is the hatred of Cain against Abel, of Saul for David, the hatred of the people against a long series of prophets, and it culminates in the hatred shown to Jesus in his crucifixion. One of my favorite activities, uh, especially in the summer months, is, is to play hoop, play outside. I love playing basketball. Love to get together with a couple of guys, get on the basketball court, bring my son, school him, as I've told you. I still love Today's Mason's 13th birthday, by the way, all right? He told me not to tell anybody. <laughs> Listen, you find him, give him 13 nuggies or something, whatever. Got a teenager in the house. I love to school my 13-year-old son, love to get on the basketball court and just sweat it up. Right, get dirty, get nasty, get bruised, bruised toenails. Don't look at my toenails if you come up to get communion from me, all right? I'm watching your eyes now. Sweaty, dirty, high-fiving, not even noticing how amazing it is just to get your sweat all over somebody until you leave the basketball court, come home, walk into the house, and my wife goes, don't even stop. Don't even, don't, don't touch me, just keep walking, right, straight to the shower. Because when you're with the guys and you're sweating, all of us are the exact same. But when I get into the presence of beauty and somebody who smells different than we smelled, all of a sudden, you start to realize, I'm not like you. I don't smell like you. I don't look like you. I need to get cleaned up. Right, her beauty in that moment exposes my dirt. And that's what happened in this story is that the beauty of this man's well-ordered life, I love God first. It exposed them, and they hated him for it. All right, so part one. Let me take you to part two, a life of habit. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees. I love the posture, by the way. I'm not going to talk about it in the sermon. But think about the posture of his body three times a day, right? The humility that is exemplified in this holistic approach to God. You're God, I'm not, I'm on my knees. Not because I have to, but because I want to honor you. So three times a day, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help, different types of praying. He's giving thanks. He's on his knees. He's asking for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the answer is yes, and that's irrevocable, right, in the detail of the story. Let me ask you this question. How would you fill in the blank? Christianity is... Don't Google it. You'll get some funky answers, right? Christianity is. How do you answer that? What comes to mind for you? Christianity is annoying. Well, Christians can be at times very annoying. Christianity is unbelievable. Christianity is an old wives' tale. Christianity is just another myth and fairy tale. Christianity is ridiculous. Christianity is unique. Christianity is all about Jesus. Yes, we're getting closer. One of the things I would put in that blank is actually Christianity is a habit. Let's talk about that component of Christianity for a moment. Christianity as a habit. Christianity does not teach that we are 
loved because of our habits. If you take nothing away, write that down. Christianity does not teach that you are any more loved because of any habit that you develop. But it does affirm that our habits grow from the fact that we are loved. Yes? Does that make sense? Religion says, create some habits, God will love you. Christianity says, God loves you, so develop some habits in response to his love for you. Our practices and our behaviors matter, but they are a spiritual reaction that are set in motion by the grace of God in somebody's life. Now, in context, let's go back to our story. In context, a new law has just been passed that says if anybody prays to another god or a man outside of King Darius, they would be federally executed. The law has been written, it has been announced, it has been enacted, and Daniel's first response, of course, is to go home, go upstairs, open the windows, pray three times a day. Did you know that Daniel's name actually means God is my judge? This is his name. This is his anchor point. People call his name. What they're saying is, God is my judge. We hear that, sounds negative. But what he's saying is, what you think matters and what you do matters, but what God thinks and what God does matters even more. That's his, that's his mentality. That's his name. That's his identity. That's his mantra. When you call Daniel's name, you're saying, God is my judge. What he says is, I love you a lot, but not as much as I love him. What you say about me matters a lot. And let's be honest, I'm insecure. Like what you say about me and what you don't say about me, the ways in which you encourage me or you tear me down, that matters a whole lot to me, and I am a work in progress. But I want to be reminded that actually, while I love you, I worship him, okay? God is my judge. When this edict is announced, Daniel doesn't panic. He doesn't even complain There is no community around him. He seems completely isolated. But what this man does is he goes back to that old habit. He prays. Daniel gave thanks to his God, not to their God. I want you to remember, of course, the detail of this man's life. Daniel is gifted. Daniel is so professionally capable and successful, he had consistently risen to the top of his vocational ladder. But what you see in this man's life is an inner dynamic that matches or exceeds and provides more meaning and foundation than all of his outer life. But he's shiny on the outside. He's older, not as shiny as he once was. But even when he steps into this new administration, they go, man, there's nobody like Daniel. He's so smart. He's so wise. We need him. He's an outsider. doesn't matter. Bring him in. But he has an inner character that has been developed that outmatches and outshines what you see in his professional life. How did that happen? I'm not going to talk as much about how. If you want to read a good book on how, go read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, right? Some incredible things about the psychology of mind and heart and desire. I'll quote him just once in a moment. Go read that book if you want to talk about how to develop some of these inner habits and some of these inner disciplines that can change your life. He's not writing from a Christian perspective, but at the same time, he's writing from a human perspective. I appreciate what he's writing there, but why did Daniel do it? Why was this his reaction? Why did he have poise in order to pray? What's going on in this man's life? I'd like to pose this for you. 
No one can prove to you that you have a transcendent part of your life, part of your humanity that's called a soul. As a Christian, I fully believe in the soul. I believe in the body. I believe in the mind and the heart. I believe God made us complex. If you read Genesis 1 through 3, you see that he did something in me that he didn't do in my little dog, Bear. All right? I study this little dog. I'm not a dog person, but we've got one in COVID, COVID puppy. Now, I look at this little puppy and I go, man, if you're a dog lover, don't hate me if I say this. I'm not sure if they have a soul. All right? I'm just not sure. If the dog has a soul that's going to be transcendent forever, the Bible doesn't teach that. But nor can somebody prove to you that you have a soul or you can't. You can't empirically, scientific, rationally prove or disprove that the soul is part of who we are. But if you believe that we don't have a purpose and we don't have a soul and that we are here due to the cosmic forces of nature at play in an unfathomable universe, this means for sure you don't have a soul. Because you are not created by an all-personal, all-knowing, all-loving God. If we go to the rationalistic, humanistic, scientific perspective exclusively, this means a soul is a chemical reaction, right? What we call a soul is just something going on in the body to perpetuate itself, right, and to be able to to, um, live on through your children. I don't think you believe that, do you? If this were true then cultivating an inner life of love is a waste of time. Habits don't matter in the long run because we're not here for the long run. We're just here for the sprint. So you may as well take what you can. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Who cares about your habits and who cares about your heart? You see, in Christianity, it says that your heart was designed to be ordered around a God. And you will be restless, as Augustine said, until you find your rest in him. And Daniel had found what his heart was made for, and he oriented and he practiced his way into the presence of this God day after day after day. This is what it's about. It's about knowing God. God is worth it. I want to know him. Man, if he made me and he made this, i got to know something about his character. I want to experience God, here's James Clear, the one quote. He says, your actions reveal how badly you want something. If you keep saying something is a priority, but you never act on it, then you don't really want it. It's time to have an honest conversation with yourself. Your actions reveal your true motivations. I love that, but it's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Daniel, when the decree is read, he doesn't panic. He prays because his life is a life of prayer. One writer put it like this. They said the decision to go into the lion's den had been settled years earlier. I love that. He wasn't thinking to himself, oh, the decree, 30 days, it's day two, I got 28 days, close the door for 28. He didn't care about that. He goes, my life is oriented in this direction. I have been practicing the presence of God for so long. You can't take it away from me. You take away my life for prayer, you can have my life. Can you imagine what's going on in this man's heart, mind, and soul for him to be able to say, I'd rather give up my life than give up my life of prayer because I have been practicing the presence of this God with this God out of love, out of want to, not ought to. Out of want to for so long, you can't take it. 
the decision to go into the lion's den settled years before the edict ever came out. Man, what a life. But a beautiful picture of the way in which God has designed us to be ordered around him and these beautiful habits that keep us connected to him. All right? Third part. A life of order, a life of habit, and a life of hope. Look at verse 16. I haven't talked about the lions once yet, have we? It's really not about the lions. I was thinking about this. I was like, you know what? I never talked about the heat of the fire when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown out. What was it? Blue fire? Was it white fire? Was it orange? Who cares? The lions don't matter. They're just a picture of judgment coming within a pluralistic society and all the pressure put upon a life, right? So verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. I grew up around the church. You might have grown up around a flannel graph illustration of what was going on in this situation. Right, you've got a den, you've got lions, you've got Daniel being tossed in. This misses the seriousness of the moment for sure. I'm okay to teach it to kids so that they can begin to wrap their mind around God's miraculous provision. But as adults, we come back to this story and we go, whoa, 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 this is pretty intense. Right, there's a pretty serious moment in the story. This is death row stuff. This is capital punishment. This is last meal. This is say goodbye to your friends. If you've got any, it's all over. They throw Daniel into the den of lions, and then they put a stone over it. They seal it with wax so that nobody's getting in and getting out. The the king puts his stamp on it and says, if anybody messes with this, they're going in there too. So what you get a picture of is death and a tomb and a funeral. That's what's going on. And the king knows, man, my man is dead. They've become close friends. He didn't want this to happen to his dear friend. He realizes, those guys tricked me. He wakes up. He stays up all night long. He says, the text tells us he fasted. King Darius is praying. He's hoping that Daniel's still there. But in the morning, he knows for sure nobody's going to survive this. Nobody can survive what happened. But an angel... Possibly even Jesus Christ himself, a pre-incarnate Jesus, came into the pit that night, someone that was strong enough to restrain the natural instinct of a roaring lion. And in the morning, when there should have been a funeral, there was a resurrection, right? The tomb opened and out walked Daniel. Now, as a Christian, it's impossible to read this story without seeing the similarities just listening to a few of the similarities between Daniel and Jesus. Here are a few. A spirit-filled man was conspired against and wrongly accused, framed on false charges, arrested while at prayer in a private location. Both even had high-ranking officials unsuccessfully working for their release. In Daniel's case, it was King Darius. In Jesus' case, it was Pontius Pilate. Both in the end are turned over to be executed. The difference, of course, is that Daniel emerges without a scratch and Jesus Christ dies on the cross within six short hours. In the story of Daniel, it's intended to take you to the cross. This is not the end of the Christian narrative. 
You don't leave here going, I want to be just like Daniel. You want to make the connection to whom Daniel is a foreshadowing. But unlike Daniel, whom God saved for his righteousness, Jesus Christ, in his part of the story, he's punished. Even though he is righteous, he's punished for our sin. He goes into the den of lions, and they tear him apart. Like That's the story of the cross, isn't it? He goes into a different sort of den, but he doesn't come out. And there's no angel there that's protecting him. That's not what's going on in this part of the story, but an angel does show up in Jesus' story, not at the beginning of it to release him from the pressure of the cross, but to announce that Jesus had gone into the tomb, that he had been defeated, but that when he got defeated, he took something with him, namely your sin, which means when you get to Daniel's pit, you realize that when you get to, sorry, when you get to Jesus' pit, you realize that he went in there for you, right? His pit, his cross, his pain, his death was for me. He absorbs the penalty, the lions of death for me, so that when I die, because of Christ, my last heartbeat here ushers me into my first heartbeat there. Making the connection between what's going on in the old and the new, seeing the gospel preached according to Daniel is what we're after as a church, always looking for Jesus in the story. Right? Where's the redemption? Where's the grace? Where's the pressure release of my caving into pluralism and giving my heart away? I can't be saved by Daniel. I can be inspired by him, but I can be saved by Jesus. I'm going to close with this little story that's been told multiple times of a pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse, who was a pastor of a big church in Philadelphia, and here's what's written about him. Cancer took his first wife, leaving him with three children all under 12. The day of the funeral, Barnhouse and his family were driving to the service when a large truck passed him, casting a noticeable shadow across their car. Turning to his oldest daughter, who was staring sadly out the window, Barnhouse asked, Tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or its shadow? Looking curiously at her father, she replied, by the shadow, I guess, it can't hurt you. And speaking to all his children, he said, your mother has not been overridden by death, but by the shadow of death. And that is nothing to fear. See, the beauty of the gospel is that hope is groundless if it's rooted in nothing. But Christianity roots your hope in the fearlessness of what Jesus has done. That when they tore apart, when they could have torn apart anybody else, but those, that angel came to hold the mouth closed of that angel. When Jesus goes into his own experience of death, he's torn apart for you. But he comes out the other side. So that when we experience real pain, real suffering, and real physical death. We know that we're going with him to the other side of what's coming. Question is, how does that sound to you? And what are you ordering your life around? Because to order your life around anything less is second best. And Jesus goes, I have come to relieve you of all of it. All the work on my shoulders for you. Step into that, right? Step into that. In a moment, we get to eat this meal, and it's a stepping into that moment. It's a stepping into the gospel. So let me prepare us, and then we'll come and we'll take. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. 
We thank you for the gospel that's as real today as it was in the, the day in which you died and then rose again three days later. News is being announced to human hearts in this building and across the world. There's pressure put on Daniel. There's pressure put on us. There's pressure put on those Christians in those various countries where Christianity is pushed out. People are attacked, canceled, and destroyed because they believe in you. We thank you for the mercy that's available to us that cannot be constrained by the edicts of a king or a nation. We know that the gospel is bigger, more beautiful, more freeing and liberating. It cannot be constrained. And in so many ways, in those places of immense pressure, where it feels as if there are lions coming at us from every different direction, this is where the gospel flourishes. And maybe at times that's why it doesn't flourish here. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. We want to develop a life of fidelity because we want to, because you've wooed us into your family. Lord Jesus, would you come right now into this space and meet with each person, their mind, their heart, their doubts, their concerns, their questions, and love them by giving them space, but maybe by answering a question through your spirit's nudging that they would know for sure as they leave today that God is real, that he's good, and that he's with me and for me, never to leave me, and that while I may get the shadow of death, Jesus got the real thing, the reality. Death is so terrible because it separates from you. And that's why we get the shadow. Because there's no more separation from God because of Jesus Christ. His spirit is in us now and won't leave. So many complexities, so many nuances, but help us to believe the simplicity of the story. Christ has died. Christ has come to relieve us of our sin. We live in honor of him. In Jesus' name.